We're going to begin our reading. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. So we'll start in verse 1. Matthew says, writing, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the wilderness opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people confronted him as, what, as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man has two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. 
But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dresser that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and uh, stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son, but, will, uh, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So um, they took him, cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become a chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. So if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, what we've been doing is this in-depth uh, look into Matthew's gospel every Sunday morning. We take a section of it. This morning, I want to look at a larger section of this chapter than what we would normally look at uh, during Sunday morning. And the reason is the verses that we're looking at this morning represent this ongoing conversation, this ongoing exchange that Jesus has had with the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And this ongoing dialogue between them, Jesus says, several important things uh, to them that gives us great insight into how Jesus saw things 2,000 years ago, but also how he sees things uh, today as well. Everything that was going on during the time of Jesus's ministry here on earth, uh, it's going on today. And Matthew chapter 21 begins with three definite signs to the nation of Israel confirming the claims of Jesus regarding who he is. And the first was the triumphal entry. It was the presentation of the king, the son of David, right? And we looked at the triumphal entry a few weeks ago, and we saw fulfilled prophecy that should have been proof enough of who Jesus claimed to be, that he was, in fact, 
the promised Messiah. And then secondly, we saw the cleansing of the temple. And it was during the cleansing of the temple that Jesus very clearly made the claim that he was God, saying that the temple was his house. And then the third sign that he gives to the nation of Israel was the cursing of the fig tree. All throughout scripture, we see the fig tree is um, you know, a representation of Israel. That's what it's used for often in the, in the scriptures. Uh, something that was well known to the religious leaders. And the lesson that, uh, that Jesus brings out by cursing the fig tree is that the nation of Israel had everything they needed to be fruitful. They should have been extremely fruitful. They should have been bearing fruit to God. But like the fig tree, they were all leaves and no fruit. And so what happens is Jesus, as he lays out this lesson, to, he reveals the nation's unbelief and that that unbelief will result in judgment. In doing these three things, Jesus reveals Israel's spiritual blindness, their inward corruption, and their outward fruitlessness. Now, just by the way of, of review in verses 12 through 17, after Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, he goes into the temple, he cleanses it by driving out all those that bought and sold. He overturns the tables of the money changers, and uh, uh, he overturns the seats of those that were selling doves. And we looked at this last time we were together a few weeks ago. And if you weren't uh, able to be here for that study, I want to encourage you to go to the website, l listen to that study. You can catch up on all of our uh, studies there, all the past teachings there at the, the website. But interestingly enough, when Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, it's not the first time that he cleanses the temple. The first time was at the beginning of his public ministry. And one of the very first things that Jesus does when he started his public ministry was he went into the temple and he did almost exactly what he does in this chapter that we're reading about, right? He goes in, he cleanses the temple and he puts a stop to all the wrong things that were going on within the temple. And, you know, it's very instructive to me that it, and it's interesting to me to note that Jesus wasn't content with cleansing the temple just a single time, right? We're just days in this chapter. We're just a few days away from Jesus's crucifixion. And he goes into the temple once again to cleanse it, right? Specifically, he goes into the court of the Gentiles and he begins to clean out all the troubling things that had actually crept back into the temple. It was just a little over three years previously that Jesus first cleansed the temple. And obviously, you know, the religious uh, leaders weren't moved in any way by the things that he did or the things uh, that he said, or why he even did those things, right? You know, the rebuke that he delivered, the, the reasons he cleansed the temple, it all fell on deaf ears. They completely ignored what he did, completely ignored what he said to them. And they just continued in their ways despite the warnings, right? There was no repentance on their part. There was no attempt to change their ways, change their behavior. They just went back to business as usual. 
And for the religious leaders, business as usual was uh, making money by fleecing the flock, fleecing those who were coming to the temple to worship and commune with God. And you know, this is important to understand because I think the immediate takeaway for us is that it's not enough just to, just to ask God to forgive us of our sins, right? It's not enough that we ask Jesus to come into our lives and clean us up to make things right in our lives, right? And then just go back to business as usual, right? We shouldn't expect that there would be any lasting life change in our hearts and lives if we fail to give attention to all that God has for us, if we fail to be in the word, reading the word and obeying his word, you know, as, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be diligent to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling and on, do it on a daily basis. It needs to be in our mind, continually seeking the Lord's heart for what he has for us, running after him with intent with purpose, loving him with all of our minds, all of our soul, all of our strength. Otherwise, those old things are just going to creep back in. What the religious leaders did, what they uh, turned the temple of God into, and what they turned the worship of, of God into was something that really displeased Jesus. It filled him with a righteous indignation. What the religious leaders were doing was an affront to Jesus. It was an affront to his holiness, to his character. It was an offense to everything that was in his heart and everything that he knows uh, is true regarding his heavenly father. Seeing the religious leaders ripping off the people in the name of God by forcing them to purchase temple-approved sacrifices at a greatly inflated rate, you know, made Jesus angry. And, you know, what happens is when somebody rips off another person in the name of God, you know, it not only reflects poorly on those that are ripping off others, right, but it tarnishes God's reputation and character in the eyes of those that are being ripped off. You know, the problem is when somebody claims to represent God, what happens is people inevitably look at those who are making that claim and they look at their actions, they look at their deeds, they look at their words, and their teachings, and they automatically assume that they're accurately representing God and his teaching. So then they conclude, well, that's what God must look like. He must look like that because... You know, these people are representing him. And if he didn't look like that, he wouldn't have them representing him. You know, and it, and it makes sense, doesn't it? And, and you know what happens? The end result is that people then, you know, turn from God because how he's been misrepresented by people that claim uh, to be followers of God. And what the religious leaders were doing was really giving God just this black eye, right? And, they, their negative portrayal of God was just tarnishing his reputation. And the result was that the people began to despise going to the temple to worship and commune with God because they knew going there just uh, meant that they were just going to get ripped off. And it just became a terrible experience. You know how we as believers need to live 
the way we believe, or at least the way we say we believe. You know what? We need to accurately represent God in our world. We can't be saying one thing and doing another. Now, not only did the law of Moses require every male over the age of 20 to come to the temple, uh, come to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice, but they were also required to give a half shekel uh, in order to support the maintenance of the temple. They, they would call it a temple tax. And it also provided support for the priests and the Levites who were serving within the temple. And so what the religious leaders of the day did, not only would they reject the, the lamb, the sacrifice that you would bring uh, from home by finding some type of flaw in it, you know, and then force you to buy a sacrifice at this ridiculously inflated price, just gouging, you know, the worshipers of God. But on top of all of that, what they would do is, is as you would bring your Greek and Roman coins, the common coins used for commercial enterprise, as you would bring them, they would reject them because you know it had a graven image on it. They wouldn't take that. You had to exchange the Greek and Roman coins and get a temple shekel to pay that temple tax. And what they would do is, is they would exchange uh, these coins. They just offered a terrible exchange rate. Again, just ripping off the people. And all of it would just leave this terrible taste in the mouths of everyone coming to worship God. And the religious leaders, they were making a fortune. They were making money hand over fist, you know, off of all this graft and corruption. You know, they were dragging God's name into all of it, soiling his reputation through all of it. And they were claiming to represent God but all uh, they were doing were lining their pockets. They were just lining their pockets, dirtying up God's name in the process. And it was just a terrible misrepresentation of the Lord. And the people came to the, pal uh, to the place where they just, again, just hated going to the temple to offer a sacrifice. It's just a horrible experience for those who wanted to worship the Lord. Now, the Jewish religious leaders set all of this up. The money changers, the pins for the animals, they set it all up in the temple of the courtyard. You know, the temple, uh, temple of the, uh, sorry, the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was the outermost uh, court from the Holy of Holies. And basically what happened is they brought all this, these booze in, these pins in. What they did was they crowded out all the Gentiles. Right? There is no room for the Gentiles in that area. So Jesus comes into the temple. He puts a stop to all of it and declares that they've made the house of God a den of thieves. They had taken the holiest place in all of Judaism, the temple, and they turned it into a safe haven for thieves and robbers instead of, instead of uh, it being what it was intended to be, a sacred place of worship. The temple no longer uh, resembled anything that God had intended for it. It just became a place where thieves and robbers could divvy up the loot of what they stole from the people. And now Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple there in verse 14. And now there's finally room for uh, people, for Gentiles to come in and receive healing. And seeing this, even the kids saw what was going on. And they became, 
began to praise the Lord and proclaim Jesus as the son of David, the promised Messiah. And one of the things we want to see here through all of this is Jesus' passion for God and his disgust over what the worship of God had been turned into. Not by people of the world. You know, not by a bunch of pagans that are outside of Judaism, right? But by people who were supposed to represent God. By a bunch of religious leaders whose hearts had drifted very, very far away from God. You know, there's a verse in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 2.1. It's something that is really powerful to me. And it says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to those things we have heard, lest we drift away. You know, it's a warning to us saying that if we're not careful, we're vulnerable of drifting very, very far away from God's heart, just like these religious leaders. Now, you might recall from one of our previous studies that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. It occurred on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Happened to be the day that Moses instructed the people to select the, the lamb for the Passover, Exodus 12, 3. Um, the lamb was to be with the family after it was selected for the next four days. And during that period, they were to inspect that lamb very, very closely to ensure that it was without spot or blemish. They were to uh, scrutinize that little lamb very, very closely to make sure it was a suitable, acceptable sacrifice. And what we see here in Matthew 21, starting at verse 23, going on through Matthew 22, is Jesus, our Passover lamb, he's going to be tested. He's going to be scrutinized four times by the religious leaders to prove to everyone that he, in fact, is an acceptable sacrifice, the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. Well, our study now begins in verse 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You know, it would seem that in the very middle of Jesus' teaching, you know, these, the highest religious leaders of the entire nation of Israel, right? They interrupt Jesus and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? You know, the, the religious leaders, they were intent on rejecting Jesus and not receiving any of his teaching. So much so that they were willing to interrupt him while, while teaching so that others would not be able to receive his teaching either. And you know, it's interesting to note, just kind of a little bit of a side note. Earlier, Jesus said that the temple was to be a house of prayer. And now we see Jesus teaching and preaching there in the courtyards of the temple. Teaching and preaching needs to be coupled with prayer. It's mandatory. And you know, I would just like to encourage you can I encourage you? Would you please be praying for me during the week? You know, uh, I need your prayers. Pray for my time that I spend with the Lord, studying and preparing. 
right? That I hear from him in order to bring his heart to the church. Pray that he would anoint the simple teaching of the word and that it would go out in power. And pray that our hearts would be open and listening, our ears would be listening, ready to receive the teaching of, of God. You know what? Everybody in this room, everybody watching online on a regular basis, you know what? You actually play a vital role in this ministry. You know, it's on our knees that we're going to grow in breadth and depth as a church. It comes about through prayer. Well, back to what we were looking at. The religious leaders, you know, they were referring to when they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? That these things that they're referring to, most likely the triumphal entry into the city, the reception of praise from the people, the cleansing of the temple, the healing of those that are blind and lame, and then his teachings, right? And the religious leaders understood very clearly that Jesus claimed to be the promised Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. And they wanted to know where he got his authority to do the things that he was doing and to make the claims that he was making. You know, who gave him that authority? What credentials did he have? You know, what degrees, what diplomas, what formal training do you have, Jesus? What permission slip did he have from man that would allow him to do these things? Because they knew that they hadn't given him that authority. And what they're attempting to do in asking Jesus this question is what they've been attempting to do time and time again throughout the three years of Jesus' ministry. They're trying to trap him in order to discredit him in front of the people or use his words to accuse him of something. You know, if he refused to answer them where he got the authority, if he refused to answer that question, you know, they would argue that uh, to the people that his silence was a, basically a confession that he had no authority. But should he claim that his authority was from God, then you know what they would do is they would demand another sign from heaven like they've been doing. Give us a sign from heaven. Or they would use those words uh, uh, and accuse him of blasphemy. And in verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where is it from? From heaven or from men? You know, and we don't want to miss this very important point here. Jesus agrees. He actually agrees that he's going to tell them where his authority came from if they would agree to publicly declare their opinion regarding the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, Jesus, he's just, he's just a masterful teacher. He is the master, isn't he? Right? He asks them a question in order to reveal to these religious leaders the truth. The truth of who he is and the truth of the hardness of their wicked, hard hearts. And again, we don't want to miss that all of this is going on in public, right? They came and interrupted Jesus during his teaching there in the temple courtyard, you know, in order to confront him regarding the, the authority of his, right? So there's an audience. There's a large audience that's hearing and witnessing 
the events that are going on here. And verse 25 continues, you know, he asked, Jesus asked them a question, and it says that they reasoned among themselves. This cracks me up. I mean, if this was a movie, the camera angle, the camera would be on the ground looking up, and you'd just see a circle of heads. These guys all in their huddle, you know, discussing things, you know. Uh, they reason among themselves, hey, listen, if we say he's from heaven, he's going to ask us, uh, you know, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, you know, we fear the multitude for all come and John is a prophet. Hey, it's just comical. These guys, you know, they're custodians of the spiritual life of the nation of Israel. And as the custodians of that spiritual life for the nation, they have the right and they have the responsibility to ask this question. But in asking this question of Jesus, right, in light of three years of miracles and amazing teaching, they were just revealing their ignorance and the hardness of their own hearts, right? Had they just taken time to consider the miracles and the teaching of Jesus, right, they wouldn't have had to ask him where his authority came from. It clearly came from God. It's the only conclusion you can come to. Well, Jesus puts these religious leaders in this very difficult position that they had so often tried to trap him in. So they said that John's, you know, if they said that John's ministry was heaven sent, then Jesus would say, as they reasoned, then why didn't you believe? Uh, you know, because John... He testified himself of me, right? First John 1, 3, John the Baptist said, and I have seen and testified that this, speaking of Jesus, is the Son of God, you know? Had the religious leaders received John and his ministry of preparing the way before the Lord, which was a fulfillment of uh, the prophecy in Isaiah 40, they would have confessed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah the promised Messiah, and they would have validated everything that Jesus claimed to be. But you know what? If they didn't want, if they if they wanted to deny John's ministry was sent from God, they they didn't want to deny that because they were afraid of the people. You know, they were afraid that the people would get upset and and reject them because all the people saw John as a as a prophet. All the people went out to be baptized by John. They went out to hear John preach when he called the people to repentance. You know, the religious leaders did what so many people today do. Instead of receiving the witness of so many believing Christians, testifying of who Jesus is, instead of considering the claims of Jesus, you know, examining the teachings of Jesus, looking at the evidence Right, in order to come to the proper concluding regard, a conclusion regarding Jesus, they just continue in their rejection of him because, that's a reason word, because they don't want to believe in him. Pure and simple, they don't want to believe in him. The religious leaders aren't concerned about the truth. In fact, they actually want to avoid the truth. You know, if they say that John's ministry and his witness was from heaven, then they would have uh, been they would have been responsible to give a uh, reason why they failed to believe 
in Jesus. But if they say his ministry of witness was not from heaven, it was just, you know, the work of some crazy guy out in the desert, you know, just some guy, uh, strictly it was uh, of human origin, you know, it was done in, in his own strength. Well, they would have been in danger of the people revolting. And they were more afraid of the people around them than they were uh, of God himself. You know, how true is Proverbs 29, 25? says, the fear of man brings a snare. But it goes on and says this, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. That's where our trust needs to be, in Jesus. Well, verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. I mean, it dawned on the religious leaders that they were caught in their own trap. They're on the ropes, right? They're in trouble. So what do they do? They just refuse to answer instead of confessing what they knew to be true. In other words, they lie. They just lied about it, you know? Yeah, I don't know. We don't know. You know, it's a dark and twisted heart that will refuse to confess that they're wrong in order that they may remain in their sin. You know what? That's the power of sin in the life of so many, so many unbelievers. You know, it's the power that causes so many people to simply, you know, refuse to give honest consideration to the evidence regarding Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And the verse continues on. It says, and he, Jesus, said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In essence, Jesus says, okay, you know, you don't answer me. That means I have no obligation to answer you since you refuse to look at the facts and engage in an honest dialogue. That's what God wants from people. Isaiah 1.18, come, let us reason together. Let us use our minds. Let's think it through. Let's examine the evidence. Jesus says, okay, I have no obligation to give you an answer. But don't you just love Jesus? You know what he does? He goes on to give them an answer. He answers their question. He just doesn't do it directly. He does it indirectly. He answers them through the following three parables. And then finally, through a question that he asks them at the end of Matthew chapter 22. Again, remember, this is all one long section going through out Matthew 22. You know what? If you're taking notes, what we're about to see here is the authority behind all of Jesus's actions and words. And his authority is the authority of heaven. It's the authority that comes from being the son of God. Jesus has the highest authority, right? And he alone is the true and faithful witness representing God the Father. Instead of answering these religious leaders directly, Jesus speaks three parables to them, two of which are in this chapter that we're looking at today. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work in my vineyard today. Go today and work in my vineyard. And uh, he answered and said, I don't think so. I will not. But afterwards, he, re he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom uh, of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe. 
You know, Jesus puts forth this parable. And the meaning is actually very, very clear. The Jewish re religious leaders in this parable, you know, they're the son who said that they would, that they would go, obey God, but didn't. Right? And on the other hand, the tax collectors and harlot, they're the son that said that they would go their own way. They were only interested in doing their own thing, but ultimately changed their mind, you know, and did the Father's will. It's interesting to note that Jesus tells us this parable, picturing two very different sons, neither of which, you know, is better than the other. They're both basically the same. They both have the same dad on top of it. They both were given the same command. You know, the one uh, said he would not do what his father's requested, but later, after he thought about it, regretted it and repented. And repentance is just changing of the mind, changing the direction. You're headed in one direction, you turn around, you go the other way, right? And that son went into the, the vineyard fulfilling the desire of the father. His initial response gave way to doing the right thing, right? He proved better than what he promised. The other son, who said that he would go, you know, uh, and do the father's will, he even, you know, used terms of respect to the father. He calls his father, sir. You know, with his mouth, he gives honor to the father, but he failed to back it up with action. You know, many people in the world claim to love God, but their hearts are far, far from him and their actions don't back up their words. You know, the religious leaders claimed allegiance to God, but failed in their practice, right? While the tax collectors and sinners ultimately repented and surrendered to God. You know, when Jesus then asked the uh, religious leaders, verse 31, he says, which of the two did the will of the Father. And they said to him, very correctly, the first. Then Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots, uh, enter the kingdom of, of God before you. You know, that statement must have dropped these religious leaders. It floored them. I mean, I bet you that there was just this deafening hush that came across the crowd right? At this point, you could have heard a pin drop. The idea that the despised and immoral people, the outcasts, the vilest of sinners in the community and society, the tax collectors, the harlots, the prostitutes, the very idea that they, of all people, would enter the kingdom of God and that these very pious religious leaders who meticulously followed every detail and aspect of the law would not, you know? <laughs> you know, the very worst kind of sinners were going to go to heaven way before any of these religious leaders would enter in. That was inconceivable for them. I mean, it was unthinkable because in the mind of those Jewish religious leaders, God had no interest in a prostitute. God had no interest in a tax collector. He has no interest in sinners 
period. That was what was in their mind. The only ones in their minds that were going to heaven, well, were them. <laughs> you know how convenient. You know, not only them, but religious people like them. They were the only ones who were keeping the rituals, the religious rituals, right? Now, this is so sobering. This is such a sobering parable that goes out to each one of us this morning. We need to understand that promises can never take the place of performance, right? Words can never be substituted for action. It's not enough just to attend church. It's not enough to be baptized. It's not enough to come up and take communion. These things can't save us, and they carry no weight with a holy God in terms of salvation. There needs to be a transformation. There needs to be a radical transformation that only comes from receiving Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior, receiving Him as the Messiah, and then giving ourselves, giving yourself to following Him with all your heart. And that was something that these religious leaders were unwilling to do. When Jesus tells them that harlots and tax collectors are getting to heaven uh, before them, you know what? Every eye in that crowded temple courtyard turned and fixed their gaze on Jesus. Every ear, you know, was straining to hear what he had to say. Because you know what? People didn't speak to these religious leaders like this. Man, I mean, that's, what are you thinking? This statement is so inconceivably offensive to these religious leaders. I don't think we can really grasp just how radically offensive this statement is that Jesus makes. And you know what? He's not trying to offend them just for the sake of offending them, right? He's not trying to just say something nasty to them because he's fed up with them. That's not Jesus. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to break through their hardness so that they will understand who he is, so that they would wake up to reality and place their faith in him as their Messiah. And Jesus is telling them that anyone who will repent of their sins and place their faith in him as their Savior will be forgiven and ushered into the kingdom of heaven way before those who are just keeping the outward religious rituals. Salvation is not based on living a little better life than the next guy. Jesus goes on to say, verse 33, here another parable. I wonder if they're just like, no, please, not another one. He says, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants beat one, killed one, stoned another. And again, he sent others more than the first, and they, did not, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent a son to them, saying, they will respect my son. 
But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, this parable is quite unique. This parable is different than all the other parables in that usually within a parable, the details, you know, even though they're very familiar to the listener, they're not that important. You know, what I mean by that is the point behind the parable, that's the important thing, right? That's what needs to be considered, not the details. However, in this parable, right, every detail is important. And the religious leaders understood exactly what Jesus' point was in telling them this parable. This parable introduces us to the landowner, verse 33, who went to great lengths and great expense to himself, right, to make his vineyard fruitful. And the image of the vineyard was well-known. It was a well-known prophetic picture uh, within the nation of Israel, certainly to these religious leaders. In this parable, Jesus is almost quoting word for word Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. And at the end of that passage, Isaiah 5, 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So they knew exactly what he was talking about. And the hedge that was around the vineyard, that hedge is intended for protection. You know, it was to keep wild beasts out who would ravage the vineyard, as well as, you know, it would keep those out who wanted to steal the grapes as they were ripening, right? So every vineyard also had a wine press. You know, the wine press is just, that's what they did. They pressed the grapes, they got the juice, and that's what they made the wine with. And every vineyard also had a high tower. And that high tower was twofold, right? It served as a watchtower from which the laborers could watch for thieves that were coming in to steal the grapes as they were ripening. And secondly, it provided a place for them to lodge, right? Those who were working in the vineyard. Now, it was a very normal thing in those days to have landowners that were absentee landowners who would lease out uh, their land to others in order to work it. You know, it's kind of like what I think we, you know, would call in, in uh, American past, maybe they still do it, I don't know, sharecroppers, right? Uh, you know, the harvest time would come and the landowner would expect some type of payment from the produce uh, of the field that he leased to them. And typically the payment came in one of three ways. One, you know, they might pay the landowner rent, you know, some amount of money that was previously agreed upon. Secondly, they might pay uh, the landowner with a previously agreed upon amount of produce from the land, you know, so many I don't know, however you measure produce, so many bushels, any farmers in here, bales of hay, whatever, you know? Or, uh, you know, they would pay the landowner with the previously agreed upon um, percentage of that harvest. Jesus speaking this parable is reminding them 
Isaiah 5, 7, it would remind them, it would remind the religious leaders just how good God has been to the nation of Israel. The picture that Jesus was painting through all, of, all these details would be very, very familiar to the religious leaders. The religious leaders would recognize almost immediately, again, that the vineyard was the nation of Israel. The landowner represented God, right? And they would be reminded how God delivered them out of the nation, uh, how God delivered the nation of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt and planted them in a land flowing with milk and honey, right? how God lavished upon them just so many blessings, both material and spiritual. And, and all the Lord was looking for in return was that they would bear fruit to his glory. And the religious leaders were those whom the vineyard was leased to in this parable and uh, in order to, to produce a crop. And God had given the religious leaders the responsibility of caring for the nation, the spiritual welfare of the nation. And the servants were those uh, in the parable, verses 34 through 36. They were the prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel. Those who were so often rejected and mistreated and even killed. And in response to the obvious, overwhelming wickedness of the workers of the vineyard in the parable, you know, what does the landowner do? Who does he send next after all these servants? He sends his son. The landowner could have sent forces to destroy those wicked servants, but instead he sends his son, thinking that they would respect him as his son. And Jesus is indirectly answering their question of where he has received his authority. He's saying his authority came from God. The reference to the son would immediately be understood by the religious leaders that Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. They would understand that Jesus was claiming to be the heir of all things, sent by God. In verse 38, when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, uh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What audacity. You know what? What selfish arrogance. The depths of wickedness here. I mean, it's just unbelievable that these workers of the vineyards thought that they could kill the son and everything that would be his would now be ours. I mean, it's just crazy. And again, you can't forget that these, these events, this ongoing exchange is going on, you know, uh, in a very real time when these religious leaders are actively plotting Jesus' death, plotting his crucifixion. Jesus is just days away from the cross. And just as Jesus said the son would be cast out of the vineyard and killed, so too the religious leaders, they're, they're planning and plotting to have Jesus crucified outside of the vineyard, outside of the gate on a hill called Golgotha. Instead of responding to the sun, the sun, instead of receiving the light of the world, what do they do? They reject him. They refuse to acknowledge him as their savior. And they're seeking to kill him. What audacity. Can you imagine the depth of wickedness here? It's just unbelievable. And Jesus then asks the religious leaders, you know, 
therefore, therefore just means, you know, in light of these things, in light of everything that's gone before, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do those, to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. I mean, I think it's something to be mindful of. The hypocrisy of the religious leaders blinded them to the fact, even though they understood completely what Jesus was saying. They were so blinded by their sin, so blinded by their arrogance, so blinded by their wicked hearts. But most of all, they were blinded by their decision to reject Jesus as their Savior. They were so blinded by their sin that they could not see that they were passing judgment on themselves, right? There's such an interesting verse that's found in Acts, Acts 13, 46. Paul's talking to the Jewish people, and he says, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. You know what? You talk to people, you witness to people, and all the time you'll hear, you know, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. You know, and they fail to realize that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, it's only through their rejection of Jesus that they judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. God sends no one to hell. Those who go to hell go there because, you know, they choose to go there. They go to hell because they, re they choose to reject the free gift of salvation. You know, they go to hell to bear the wrath of God for all eternity because they don't want to believe in Jesus and confess their need for a Savior. Salvation is never an issue of evidence. It's always an issue of will. People don't want to believe. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to the nation, bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 here. Again, the religious leaders, they understand, they would understand immediately that Jesus is referring to them as the builders, right? The stone rejected by the builders, you know, is Jesus. He's, he's speaking of himself as that stone. The stone that reject, was rejected by the, the builders, which happens to be the most important stone of the entire building, the cornerstone, the capstone, right? To the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block, it says in Isaiah 8.14, right? He was a rock of offense. To the believer, Jesus is our rock. He's our sure foundation, the cornerstone rejected by the builders on which our salvation is established. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, like many people inside and outside of the church today, they seek to limit Jesus. You know, they refuse to yield to his authority. You know, they fail to respond to him, giving their hearts to him. They fail to seek him as Lord. You know, they want to minimize him. Or even better, yeah, let's just eliminate him completely. But one day in the age to come, 
people are going to find out that Jesus Christ, the one whom they gave lip service to or just rejected him out, outright, he actually is the most important person in all the world, in all of eternity. The kingdom is taken away from these religious leaders and is offered to those who will receive it and bear fruit to God. You know, it doesn't matter where you come from, who your parents are, what your religious background is. We know this because Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 44, whoever, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. You know, when we see Jesus for who he is, the Holy Spirit, you know, convicts us of our sin. We come to him, we fall upon him, but we ask for mercy and grace. You know, there's a broken, a breaking that occurs in, inside of us, a brokenness over our sin, a brokenness and uh, a shamefulness, right? We're ashamed of the things that we've done. Our pride gets broken. Realizing we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. We've fallen short and deserve judgment. Yeah? And even believers, even as believers, we need, to, we need to understand this and let this be part of our daily mindset, right? Not to beat us over the head, you know, not to beat us down over our past, but to keep us from pride and arrogance and becoming like these religious leaders. We need to see who we are in light of the cross apart from Jesus Christ. We deserve judgment, right? And you know what? When we fall on him, we come to this point of brokenness and Jesus is willing to wash us and cleanse us from our sins. We're adopted into the family of God and the kingdom of heaven is open to us, given to us that we might go in and bear fruit to the glory of God. And Jesus continues to say, but in contrast, on whoever it falls, this stone, whoever it falls, it will grind them to powder. Those who reject Jesus, those who fail to recognize his right to rule in their lives, right? The stone, Jesus Christ himself, will fall upon them in judgment. And the weight of that judgment, right? the judgment that's just and deserving, the judgment that we all deserve, will be as if, uh, you know, it will ju just grind us to powder, right? And it's very sobering. This is a very serious passage of Scripture. It needs to be considered carefully because the choice is each one of ours to make, right? What will you do with Jesus? Rejecting his love and lordship over your life, it's not a very good strategy. It doesn't end really well if that's what you want to do. The consequences of that decision will last for eternity. To follow Jesus with a half-hearted, lukewarm commitment, one foot in the church, one foot in the world, you know what? Those people that are willing to confess him with his lips, but their actions, you know, don't back up the things that they say, you know, there's no security in that either. It's very sobering. Jesus expects and demands an all-or-nothing commitment from each one of us. And, and you know what? He doesn't make any apologies about that because that's what you expect in a commitment. You know, just think, you know, what if your spouse came to you and said, you know what, honey? Well, maybe for you guys that aren't married, your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Hey, you know, sweetie, 
I am totally committed. You have all of my love five out of seven days of the week. Tuesdays and Thursdays are reserved for somebody else I love. You know what? You wouldn't, you wouldn't, that would be unacceptable to you. You would just say, no, it's all or nothing, and you wouldn't feel bad, and you wouldn't be wrong for saying it, right? And, and that's equally as unacceptable to Jesus, that type of commandment. It's all or nothing, and he makes no apologies for demanding it. You're not doing him any favors by claiming to represent him and then act, you know, contrary to his will and nature. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father in heaven. And the will of the Father is to believe wholeheartedly on the Son and follow him with everything, all of our strength, everything that's within us. That's the only security. That's the only place where security is found in this life, resulting in entering into the kingdom and enjoying everlasting life in the presence of God for eternity. Well, that's a little bit redundant, everlasting eternity. That's how long it is. That's how wonderful it is. Right? My recommendation to non-believers, as well as half-hearted, uh, lukewarm believers, is to take steps to build your life upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Give yourself to him. Give your life completely and totally to him, holding nothing in reserve. For he alone is a sure foundation upon which we must build our lives. Well, verse 45, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But they sought to lay their hands on him. They feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. Man, how hard-headed are these guys? How hard-hearted are these guys? When confronted with their sin, what do they do? You know what? They double down and now they just want to lay hands on them and grab them right then and there. You know, but they're afraid of the people around them. And that's the only thing right now, apart from God's plan, of course. You know, that's what they're most concerned about, just the people. You know, they're going to, like, lay hands on us. There are a lot of things that we can learn about God, about Jesus from this parable. And I just want to quickly mention some of them. In regards to God, we learn God has given us everything we need to be fruitful. Right? Just as a landowner went to great lengths and great expense himself to build that hedge, to build the wine press, to build that tower, God has given everything we need to live fruitful lives to his glory. Secondly, what we learn is God is patient. Just as a landowner sent messenger after messenger to the laborers, hoping that they would turn, giving them a chance to respond properly to him, then finally sending his son, so too God has given us his word, penned by his servants, revealing his son to us in order that we might respond appropriately, uh, you know, that we might repent and receive his free gift of salvation. God bears with men in all of their sin because his desire is that all men would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Third, we learn from this parable that God will judge, though, if he's forced to. In the end, the landowner took the vineyard from the laborers and rejected his, uh, who rejected his son and cast them out, giving it to others. And so, too, there's judgment waiting for those that reject Jesus Christ. Right? 
And the Bible says that they'll be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in regards to Jesus, we learn from this parable. First, Jesus is not just another prophet. He's just not another servant of God. Jesus quite clearly identifies himself uh, not as one of the prophets that came before him, all those guys that came before him, great guys, messengers of God, servants, right? But Jesus is the Son of God. And this parable contains one of the clearest claims of Jesus Christ, claiming to be uniquely the Son of God. He is so far beyond even the greatest of all of the prophets. All the prophets combined, he's so far beyond them. Secondly, we know that we learn from this parable that Jesus knows all things. He knew that the cross was before them. And he gives this parable, and, and he says that, you know what? The son, he's going to be cast out and killed, alluding to the crucifixion where he's going to be cast out of the uh, vineyard. Jesus was not an unfortunate victim that just, you know, a series of uh, unfortunate things happened and he lost his life, you know, he was crucified. No, he went to the cross willingly, giving his life as a ransom for the sin of many, knowing that whoever would be willing to repent of their sins, come to him and ask for forgiveness, believe in him as the savior of the world, they would be saved. And in regards to mankind, what we learn from this parable, first, mankind is acting in willful rebellion to God. There is a deliberate, sinful rebellion and disobedience to God disobedience to God, demonstrated by the labors of the vineyard towards the landowner. Secondly, we learn mankind has free will. All mankind has a choice to make. Everyone needs to make a choice. Will they surrender to the landowner, you know, which is God in the parable, or will they refuse to come un under their authority? Will they honor the son who is Jesus in this parable, or will they reject him? And thirdly, we learn from this parable that there's a day coming where all mankind will answer for how they respond to the Son. You know, it's a choice each one of us makes. And with that choice, we decide whether we will receive grace and mercy and blessing from a generous and patient God or we'll receive just judgment, you know, that our sins deserve. You know, the chief priests and the religious leaders and all the elders of Israel, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And he did, you know, that he did what he did with the authority of God given to him because he's the very son of God. The ongoing, this ongoing exchange between the religious leaders and Jesus, again, it continues on into the next chapter. We'll be looking at it in the coming weeks. You know, and in the next chapter, Jesus gives them Another parable. Please, not another one. You know? You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're here, you're not a believer. If you're watching online, you're not a believer. If you've never surrendered your heart to him as your savior, you know, I just have one question. What could you possibly be waiting for? You know what? Rest assured, whatever keeps you from surrendering your life to Jesus, that is your enemy. Right? You want to get away from that as fast as you can. Run to Jesus. If you're a half-hearted, lukewarm follower uh, of Jesus today, here in our midst or watching online, 
Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but only he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, there's absolutely no security in a half-hearted, lukewarm commitment to Jesus. If your lips are saying one thing and your actions are saying another, you're just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You know, you're in danger of being cast out. Let's pray. Worship team can come forward. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. Lord, it's a, it's a tough word to deliver. It's sobering. It's serious. Lord, and I just pray that each one of us would just take time to consider honestly where we stand with you what relationship we have with you. If you're here today watching online, you're not a believer, you can be saved today, have your sins forgiven today by just confessing that you're a sinner, agreeing with God that you've fallen short and asking Jesus to come into your life to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to wash you in his blood by telling him that you believe he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried on the third day Resurrect, and if you'll do that, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again, a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things are made new, and now you can walk with Him in communion. And if you're a person here that's half hearted, lukewarm, you know what? The Lord is waiting for you to return. He's saying, Return to me, my child. Confess your need for Him. Tell him you're sorry for straying, sorry for wandering, and you want to come back, and he'll receive you with open arms. Let's worship.